I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Room 104 podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Shalon. FM 104. It's Cormac and here. Now we're talking about sweet revenge and whether or not you would like to take more calculated cold revenge and plan it over days and weeks, months, maybe even years. Or are we more inclined to just take immediate proportioned revenge. Well, people who have been looking into uh, this whole area of revenge, um, one of the researchers joining us now from the Virginia Commonwealth University, they did a really interesting study looking at a lot of different aspects of revenge. And we are delighted to welcome onto the show right now, Dr. David Chester, sir. How are you? Doing very well. Thanks for having me. Now, David, obviously revenge is best served cold, or that's what we're told anyway. Is there any truth behind that? That's what we wanted to find out. You know, this is this cultural myth that we hear, you know, it shows up on TV and Netflix and books and everything that the way to get revenge is to take your time, plan it out, try and extract the most sweetness from the revenge incident. But really, scientifically, this hasn't been investigated. And so we ran a series of studies to try and see if there's any truth to this. You know, do people really try and serve up revenge in a cold platter or do they want it hot and ready? And that was the purpose of our study. Before we jump into some of the specifics that you discovered in the study, uh, personally, is there any particular reason why you uh, wanted to research revenge yourself? Were were you wronged back in the day and you're trying to figure out how should I do this? I I think we all have been wronged, at least to some degree in our our past. You know, acts of aggression are pretty uh, common in, in human life. I'm an aggression researcher. I really just want to study why people hurt each other. And one of the most common ways that people hurt each other is through acts of revenge, or at least perceived revenge, where they think they've been wronged and they're trying to right that wrong through through aggression. So that's that's how I came to study this. And why do we go to revenge when we're angry and when we're upset? Probably the most accepted answer is that it's a really great way to deter future acts of harm against yourself. Revenge is a good way to communicate to other people that I'm not someone to mess around with. I'm not someone to inflict costs upon. And if you have a reputation for being someone who, you know, really will retaliate if wrong, then it really dissuades people and deters people from wronging you in the first place. So it kind of has this adaptive functional value where it protects you from people harming you just by the threat of the revenge that you might inflict on them. So it, it could it be seen as a, as a positive character trait in some kind of Machiavellian way to, to, to have? It's tricky. So <laughs> you definitely don't want to swear off all revenge in your future because you will incur costs. There's research showing that people who never play tit for tat, who never reciprocate harm with harm, um, that they are taken advantage of. 
So it certainly has a place in the human psychological toolkit. It definitely plays a role in helping to manage the relationships, the complex human relationships that we all have. Some people step over the line and every now and then it's kind of helpful in a subtle way to uh, you know communicate to them that you know that was not acceptable. So there is a place for revenge in a civil society so far as it is regulated and not taken to the point where people are truly harmed or truly killed or anything like that. So it's all about regulated revenge. And so our research has shown that most people go for the quick and easy route where they've been harmed, they've been wronged, they've been provoked, and they just kind of give someone a quick retaliatory response uh, in order to teach them a lesson. You know, hey, you wronged me, I wronged you back, please don't do that in the future. But if you have perhaps a more sadistic goal or if you have some more psychopathic traits, your goals may be different than most people and your goals may be to really extract a great deal of pleasure and satisfaction from the harm done to someone that you perceive to have wronged you. And so if you're one of those people, our research shows that you actually don't want the quick and easy revenge, that you do want to take your time, plan it out, delay the revenge until you can extract the most harm from that person. Wow, that's interesting. Because we all know there's one or two people out there that just hold on to a grudge for years and want to milk that as much uh, as much as possible. You did a, a lot of different experiments l- looking into this um, recently. And I know, I think you did maybe it was a five or six se- separate kind of ones. But for you, what were some of the more interesting findings that you might have found out of some of those experiments that you ran? Yeah, there's a lot here. So this, this whole thing was led by a graduate student, a former graduate student in my lab, Dr. Samuel West, who's now a postdoctoral researcher. And he conducted this amazing array of experiments. And I think the findings are very interesting. One of the most interesting findings to me is that uh, people who prefer to get this delayed revenge, who like it best served cold, are people who have greater self-control. So typically we construe aggression and revenge as this impulsive, hot-headed form of behavior where the people who are doing it really can't control their impulses and they're out there just acting on every whim that they have. But our research shows that for people who are willing to bide their time and plan it out and seek the greater harm in the long run, they actually have to use some self-control. So this really goes against this broader narrative that aggression is all about impulsivity and rash behavior, which it is, that is true, but that's not all of it. That there's a big chunk of aggression and revenge that is due to actual successful, effective self-control people inhibiting their impulses and directing their behavior towards this broader goal. Very interesting. And in terms of actually getting revenge on people, what kind of situations are you looking at? Like, is it people cheating on each other? What's the most common? For the scientific purposes of the laboratory, we try and boil it down, you know, as simply as we can. So we don't make these elaborate situations where people are thinking about, you know, infidelity or a a boss cheating them out of a raise or something like that, because those are very complicated and tie into lots of complex feelings. So in the lab, we kind of make these contrived settings. uh, But the point is to really get this good experimental control over what's going on so that it's not specific just to infidelity or specific to the workplace. Um, so we gave people, you know, we brought them into the laboratory and we sat them down in front of a computer. This was a lot of this was pre-COVID and we gave them a chance to play a computer game with somebody else. This person wasn't actually real. It was a computer simulation, but they thought the person was real. And they kind of played this game against each other where they were competing to press a button faster. And if they lost the competition, they'd get blasted with this really uncomfortable noise. It's awful. It sounds like a, like a cat getting sucked into a jet turbine. It's really terrible. 
Um, but the idea is that participants had uh, their hand on the dial of how loud that could be. And so if they really wanted to seek revenge, they could crank up the volume of that really awful noise to deliver to their partner. Uh, so we made sure that their partner kind of did that to them a few times to provoke them, to get them in a place where they were kind of, you know, angry at this person. And they often retaliated in, in kind. So now that you've done all this uh, research and you've built up a whole, um, you know, knowledge set of, of, of revenge, like, can you advise people on the best way to be vengeful or to take revenge? Because, you know, there's all that thing on eye for an eye and you, you don't want to be, you want to be, be kind. And then on the other thing, you, something you said at the start reminded me of that whole argument on nice guys finishing last, where you just don't, you don't want to be a doormat either and you want to be able to set boundaries. So is there anything we can take from your research to become more, as you said, um, regulated and revengeful in, in, in where we're going forward now, you know, whether it's in a relationship or in the workplace. I'm sure really it'll be really applicable to the workplace. A lot of people hate each other in the workplace. But um, is there any tips or advice you might have for someone listening now? Yeah, I mean, in today's society, people are almost in a constant state of provocation. Uh, the things that get the most traction on social media are the things that cause the most outrage. And outrage is basically being in a state of provocation where you are then motivated to seek revenge. So it's never been more relevant than, than now to talk about this topic. And really what we're hoping that people do is, like you said, pursue regulated revenge where you, you can't forego all acts of, uh, of retaliation, but you really need to regulate them and keep them within a regulated boundary. Uh, so you do not want to go, you know, full blown and actually harm people or, or really hurt people or anything like that. But it's important to communicate to people who have wronged you that they have wronged you. You need to send them a signal, not through a harmful avenue, but through a communication avenue that they have wronged you. People often don't know if they've hurt you or not. And if you inform them, sometimes that will change their behavior. And that's a big function that revenge has is to tell people, hey, you hurt me please don't do that again in the future. And so one way to really avoid that is to just communicate with people and to inform them, hey, that thing you did, that, that hurt me, please don't do it again. Uh, instead of, you know, re resorting to something like blasting them with a horrible, a horrible sound. What about, you know, you see the every now and then one of the tabloid magazines will pop up with a, a scorned partner or woman who will write, you know, cheating scumbag on her husband's uh, car. I mean, is that an acceptable form of feedback or revenge, would you say? I, I can't weigh in on the morality of that. That's, that's for each person to decide. I'm going to have to hedge on that. But I think one thing this research should do is help us understand that we all have these vengeful tendencies. It's natural. It's human. It doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean that you should act on them. But we should all just be a little bit more understanding that vengeful tendencies are largely baked into the brain. They're part of human psychology and we can't ever hope to be rid of them, but we can hope to regulate them. So where do you want to go from here then in terms of your research? That's, uh, that's a great question. So one thing we're looking at now, so one of the very interesting findings was that people who are very high in what we call antagonistic traits, so high in psychopathy or high in sadism. These folks were the ones who were willing to wait, bide their time, and get more revenge later. And so we're kind of following up on that with some uh, neuroscience experiments, with some brain imaging experiments right now. We're trying to understand how do psychopathic individuals regulate that revenge, except they're not regulating it in the way that we were just talking about. They're regulating it towards greater revenge, towards massive harm doing, towards catastrophe. And so we're trying to understand how do these more psychopathic antagonistic individuals, how do they control their behavior in a way that allows them to seek these greater acts of revenge? And so we're doing some studies now 
where we kind of give them a chance uh, to be empathic, but not in a helpful way, to be empathic in a harmful way. So we basically give them a chance, uh, this idea that psychopaths, they, are, they have this empathy deficit, that they cannot be empathic with other people. This ties in very directly where we think that actually they can be empathic. They can, they just regulate it very strongly and they turn it on when it can help them hurt people, as opposed to typically how empathy is used to help people help people. And so if, you know, to hurt someone, you need to know how to hurt them, Mm -hmm. right? You need to know where it hurts. What things can I do? Uh, Is it money? Is it, you know, your reputation? What exactly will harm you the most? And so empathy is needed to make those kinds of calculations. And so we're doing studies right now to look at how psychopathic people use empathy in this weaponized way to get these greater acts of revenge. So that's kind of what we're following up on now. And I'm very interested to see uh, what we find. Do you ever worry that you're going to have to surround yourself with all these psychopaths and you'll just be like, oh, God. I, so I do regularly get contacted by uh, self-proclaimed psychopathic individuals. I get lots of emails and phone calls for various reasons. Um, and that's that's not the, the work I'm in. That's not the line of work that I do. So I have to decline to work with any individuals. But uh, yeah, I mean, it is uh, an interesting headspace to be in, to constantly mm. be thinking about these things. I got into this because I, I just don't understand it. You know, I, I fundamentally yeah. don't understand psychopathy and, and harm doing and revenge. It's really... This is not a part of, of, of my thinking. So uh, it's a very interesting headspace to be in. It's a headspace that a lot of people want to be in. A lot of people watch shows like Mindhunter mm. and all CSI and all these criminal dramas where people are fascinated by psychopaths and want to understand what they're trying to do. And I'm, I'm just one of those people, but I do it for a living. Yeah, just on it as well, because you mentioned about revenge being a, a warning signal to other people not to not to wrong you in the future. And you just tweaked something in my brain in a previous job I was in that uh, one of the former CEOs would, um, and you know, you could, you could stereotype and say CEOs have a higher likelihood of being maybe more psychopathic or whatever. But just one of the people that I used to work with was, uh, was, would always tell me out of fear to never cross them. Because if you cross them or you do some harm to them, they will go through you. And that, you know, if you get on the wrong side of them, they are a nightmare to work with. And, they, you know, they're hanging out to dry and they will go through you. And, and it was always, I suppose, that was a way of, you know, so that would have changed how I would have behaved around them as well, you know. So it's, yeah, so not only there's that, immediate impact on the person who has wronged you but this was maybe a, a wider kind of uh, a social signal to let everyone else know that you don't wrong me because you know I, I'll have my way with you and, and make sure you tell everyone so they all fall in line as well kind of thing. Yeah you, you see this across the animal kingdom I mean this is what the rhino's horn is and this is what the giant antlers on a stag are they are warning signals to say if you mess with me I will I will inflict great harm upon you and humans you know we don't have giant weapons attached to our skulls uh, so we have to do it through social means and we have to do things like that uh, you know to mm. convey to people don't don't cross me in the first place and it really signals what revenge is all about it's just a deterrent so that people don't inflict harm upon you uh, it's not I wouldn't recommend that people go about it in the way that that, that that workplace partner of yours did but yeah that's that's the function of revenge is to deter people from from crossing them so to speak I'm just too lazy. I'd never, I'd never even have the energy to get revenge on anyone. <laughs> but if there was somebody interested in knowing more about your research, where is the best place for them to go? Uh, at Dave S. Chester 
that's that's one of the best places to find me. But uh, yeah, you can always just check VCU's uh, Department of Psychology webpage, and I'm right there. Brilliant, Dr. David Chester. Thank you very much for speaking to us here on FM 104 tonight. A pleasure. You're listening to the Room 104 podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Shalon. FM 104. That is written Nightcrawler Friday. What? I will apologise for playing that on a Monday. It is a, a slightly inappropriate. It's slightly inappropriate. Wednesday onwards is acceptable-ish. Yeah, so, you know, we'll get on We'll get on to people who are like, you know what, from now on, we can't play that before Wednesday. But anyway, uh, it's Cormac and Saoirse here uh, on Room 104. If you've any uh, other good revenge stories, if you've exacted revenge on someone who has wronged you, let us know what the crack was. Were you glad you did it? You know, were you glad you did it? Because sometimes I think if you can do things in a rage, things might go downhill a little bit. But let us know. 0876797104. Now you have a question for us, sir. Yeah, now this one might surprise you, but what type of men give women the best orgasms? Um. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When you're saying ty- like looking type of looking men, like tall, dark, and handsome, or Mediterranean men, or I would say more personality. Personality based. Can a personality give a woman an orgasm? Yes, it can. <laughs> Don't oh, think yes, it can, it can. can This type of person has a particular type of personality. So what type of man? Yeah, a fit man. An athletic fit. Um, someone who can kind of, you know. Do you know what? I would say this person is the opposite to a fit man. And so an unhealthy, uh, it's not o- an overweight man? Not stereotypically, no. No, but you're probably in a... Um, I'm not trying to. No, no, go br- on. Brush everyone no, under the go same. On, go on, get your you brush chair now and paint us all the same. No. No, surprisingly, you have this. You have this. And what do I have? What's the thing? Crippling self doubt. I'll, I'll have to ask her. Commitment issues. I'll have to ask herself if it's true. <laughs> She'll be listening to this going, and no. What <laughs> are you on about? What actually are you on about? Is it? Is it? Is it? Is it? So, um, are you saying it's opposed to a physical feature? It's a personality trait. It's a personality trait, yeah. Uh, and not everyone is this, by the way. Um, is it a, a a a a ambitious man? 
No. Productive man. No. A tidy man. No. A man with attention to detail. You would think that would help, wouldn't you? Would you would think that would help, yeah. A persistent man with attention to detail who isn't afraid to ask for directions. That's where we're all going wrong. Oh. That's where women are going to. You're not going to find the best orgasm there. Um, go on, tell me, what is it? The answer is a funny man. <laughs> a funny man. Really? Yeah. A, a survey done, 10,000 men were surveyed. Right, okay. Girls obviously involved in this. And um, the funnier the man... The, the better, better he, he was at with his tongue. his woman. Yes. And other things. Oh. Now, I don't know if it's a creative element in here. You know, they're they're probably thinking outside the box. Boom, boom. They have to. Definitely thinking inside the box now, Sergi. Come on. <laughs> well, I hope they're not thinking in there. They should know what they're doing while they're in there, but they're thinking outside the box. Jeez, anyway. Right, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know why that is. I'm trying to think, have I ever had a funny man? No, I haven't. That's my issue. We miss now. I'm missing out big time. Missing out I don't know Would people agree If you listen to that Would you agree If you're going out With a funny man And you get the best Yeah oh, th- Okay there's always This thing where You know Beautiful people Don't have to try in bed Because they just lie there Lie there And think of Ireland uh, They lie there And they do nothing So that can be You know For men and for women And they're just Terrible in bed Because they've never Had to work for it Well if you're going to Say funny men Like are funny men Generally Okay the trope is uh, They wouldn't necessarily be good looking or beautiful they'd be funny they might be weird looking but they'd be funny and they'd yeah. have to try better so maybe the funny people have had to uh, they couldn't re- ever rely on their looks so they had to build up the personality side of things and so they just try more to, to impress or do you know what it could be what? the fact that um, the girl knows he's yeah. he's horrible looking he's funny but he, he's horrible looking <laughs> so in turn she feels better about herself she's more relaxed and can orgasm Oh, that God. could be it. Yeah. Let us know if you agree with that anyway. 0876797104. You're listening to the Room 104 podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Shalon. FM 104. It's Cormac and Sir here. Now, how do you go from having your kind of first college entry level job to in a couple of years making a huge amount of money, enough money in your job, you know, trading stocks that you can pretty much retire and then take things up another notch to where you wind up selling ecstasy and then get involved with New Mexican mafia cartels to winding up in prison. Well, one man has had that life. It's it's a crazy story and you would never believe some of the things that have happened have happened. But he joins us now to talk about his story of I don't know, rags to riches. Maybe it's back to rags again who knows but Sean Atwood sir thanks a million for popping on hey thanks for having me on guys I am delighted for this opportunity yeah we're very very intrigued uh you've had an interesting and amazing life so far can you just take us back to where it all kind of started I guess yeah if you've ever been to the northwest of England I'm from a little town called Widnes a chemical manufacturing town so I didn't grow up with much money but I got interested in the stock market at a young age So at 14, I chose economics and there was only about six of us in my high school. And the teacher, Mr. Dillon, saw I had an aptitude for it. So he started to give me classes on my own. And then I set this goal. I'm going to go to America and make a million by the age of 30. I'd watched that movie, Wall Street. So I thought the meaning of life was making money. On that path, because I know you you got a job working in in the stock market. So 
Did you leave up and leave the UK and head over to the States and start the career there? Yes, after doing business studies at Liverpool University, I moved to Phoenix, Arizona in 1991. I had two aunts out there, actually, and they really helped me establish myself there, and I got a job as a stockbroker. And then you obviously made a lot of money very quickly. Well, no. In the first couple of years, I was living off cheese on toast and bananas. (laughs) I fell into the hands of a penny stock brokerage. And if you've seen that movie, Wolf of Wall Street, Mm. it was literally, you had to have a mirror on your desk, smiling brokers make the most money. We had like 24 foot curly cords, pacing brokers make the most money. We had these like military style sales meetings at six in the morning with these drill instructor, Italian mafia um, looking types. And they were just yelling at us. You are only as big as these numbers on this board for the month. Lunches for wimps. When you take a lunch, other brokers are calling your clients. It was just like Wolf of Wall Street. And I was thrown into this straight out of uni, broke just not in cocaine and crystal meth off the desktops. They were going out, you know, striptease dancers were coming in limos. So I'm thinking, is this how adults behave in the business world? <laughs> yeah, and that was just getting started. <laughs> well, so, so the first two years, I'm living off my student credit cards. It was commission only. But five years in, I'm the top guy in the office, grossing half a million a year. At this point, I've got my own office, secretary, call callers. But I'm sick of coming in at six in the morning and you know working hard all day long. So I abandon my slow and steady progress, quit being a stockbroker, and start to invest money into the rave scene. And that was a very fateful decision that led to me spending six years inside America's toughest jails. So, yeah, then the transition across you started, because I know you mentioned in other interviews you've done that you invested a bit of money in the stock market as well and, and you were pretty much financially free or financially independent and could have retired by the time you were before 30. But then what was the decision to do that and then move into... My best mate from childhood, Wildman, he came over to America and we started throwing house parties out of his apartment in Tempe, Arizona. And this was an eclectic mix of people from gang members to Native American transvestite sex workers to Italian mafia, Russian mafia. And this is where I met a lot of characters that led to the criminal connections that ended up forming the ecstasy enterprise. If you are going to go down that road, you've got to have protection. And I ended up getting introduced to the New Mexican Mafia by a guy called G-Dog who had attended one of these parties. So we were all chilling out, listening to some rave music. People were smoking weed. And this guy shows up, ruggedly handsome, Mexican-American guy, dark hair. He's got prison tattoos. He's got some chains on. And he's providing the weed and the coke. I'm providing the ecstasy. So we started to talk to each other. A cop walks in. He says, I could smell weed from outside nobody move and he goes to grab his radio like he's going to call in and have us all arrested so we all run off into the night now i've never seen anything this heavy before so i'm terrified in this apartment complex rancho marietta there are multiple apartments of people that we know or we're working with so we go and hide in one of those it's owned by a guy called fish so fish was terrified he's like the cops are going to come we need to flush all our drugs we're all going to jail and the next thing we hear bam 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 on the french window we open it and it's g-dog he's like let me in let me in so we let him in and he schooled us he's like turn off the lights turn off the tv 
Nobody make a sound. If they knock on the door, don't answer. They couldn't have got a warrant that fast. They don't. Too many people ran into the night. They don't know where we've all gone. So we sat there. The cops knocked. We were shitting ourselves. They went next door. They carried on. At the end of the night, I said to G-Dog, look, I've got a property in Phoenix. You're too hot in this area. Let's go over there. I took him over there. And at the end of the night, he said, Sean, for protecting me, me and my brothers have got your back. I had no idea what that meant. A few months later, he says, one of my brothers wants to meet you. We go over to this house in Tempe. They've got all those lowrider showcase cars on the road outside. So I go into the living room and there's all these massive Mexican-American guys with equally mean faces. And I'm looking around the room. They've got weighing scales, like slabs of coke, crystal meth, weapons. But I do a double take when I see the TV. It's the biggest TV I've ever seen in my life. I thought, hold on a minute. That's not an ornament on top of the TV. I've seen one of them before. They had a rocket propelled grenade launcher on top of the TV. And that's how I ended up getting protected by the New Mexican Mafia. And I had no idea who they were until the night they all got arrested, which was about two years later. People on the street guiding traffic with light ones, like you see people land airplanes with. We pull up to the house and a federal SWAT team is bringing all those guys out I'd been doing business with for a couple of years in handcuffs. And they were headline news that night, the most powerful, dangerous criminal organization in Arizona at that time. They've been assassinating witnesses, tried to assassinate cops, judges that even tried to assassinate the head of the Arizona Department of Corrections, the prison system. Did you ever take a step back and go, how am I in this? What's weird is I've got anxiety and I'm a shy person. So I started to take ecstasy when the rave scene began in the UK. And I went to the extreme opposite of becoming this complete party animal, completely scrambled my decision-making processes. And I surrounded myself with equally crazy people who were all reinforcing each other's insane behavior. There was no one to put the brakes on. And we were joking. We're like characters in a movie, like, you know, Pulp Fiction or something. We're above the law. We're never going to get caught. But we were gravely mistaken. And once that cloud lifted out of my head, after the SWAT team came, the cloud of drugs of over 10 years of use, and I look back on my life, I was like, how on earth are you still alive? And just to balance that out, I don't want to glamorize this because I work in drugs education now. Before the pandemic, I was doing over 100 talks a year across the country to schools. And I go in and scare the living daylights out of school kids with what happened to me in the jail in the hope they won't get involved in drugs and crime. Backtrack a little bit before we talk about, you know, when it all came crashing down. At your peak, how big, how much drugs were you dealing like? So my competitor at the peak was Sammy the Bull Gravano, the underboss of the Gambino crime family who'd murdered almost two dozen people. One newspaper reported that he was a flash in the pan because he'd only been doing it for a year or so. I've been doing it since 97, SWAT team came, 2002, but I'd, I'd quit the importation a year before. So I've been doing it about four years and the cop said it was a multi-million dollar international drug trafficking ring yeah you know i had about 200 people working for me i had a million dollar house on the side of a mountain and properties all over the place cars all over the place i'd fly people from the uk put properties and cars in their names so that if the cops ever came it would be untraceable and i think at the peak of it uh, my bills were about 30 to forty thousand dollars a month and then it all did come crashing down. These things never end well. If you've watched Casino or Goodfellas or Scarface or any 
movie that has involves drug trafficking and gangsters. And I'm not a gangster. I was a nerd who had gangsteritis. But it never ends well. So what happened was I'd met a woman, fallen in love. She said, look, this is so dangerous. If you love me, you would stop. And I did. I stopped a year before the SWAT team came. I thought I got away with it. So May 16, 2002, I'm in my apartment in Scottsdale um, with my girlfriend. And I'm back to like trading in the stock market. I'm doing a Spanish class at the local community college. I think I'm going to live happily ever after. I get up, I'm on my computer. And then bam, 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 open the door. I'm thinking right, is this really the cops? Or is it someone pretending to be the cops? Come to rob me. So I run to the window. The whole complex is completely surrounded. There's boots thudding up the stairs outside. Tempe Police Department, we have a warrant. Open the door. I run through to the bedroom to my girlfriend. We're looking at each other like, what should we do? All right, better let them in. Get halfway through the living room and then just boom! Door just flies off the hinges. And then you see him come in and it's like, Everything slows down. It's probably just seconds. And the detective, who I later learned from the police reports was my nemesis, said, English, Sean, you're a big name from the rave scene. We finally got you. And that was that. But but what what led to, to them getting a warrant on you? Like, how did they find out a year, let's say, after you'd stopped doing it, that you were the, the person they were after? Or... Oh, they'd been following me from the very beginning. Ten witnesses had come forward and given them information about the operation. And they tried to infiltrate us with undercover cops. But we saw them coming a mile away. They'd be older people from out of state saying, yeah, you know, we need a thousand pills or something. So what I'd done was... In the very beginning of the rave scene in Arizona, there were lots of different competing cliques. And Wildman and myself would mediate the disputes between the cliques. And then we would incorporate those cliques into our enterprise. So we had all the locals working with us. So anything that was going on at the ground level, like strangers trying to infiltrate the scene, that would be reported to me immediately. So that's why the cops said in the petition to get the wiretap, you know, we've tried all conventional methods, so we, we need to get a wiretap. It's the only way we're going to get these people. And then you spent how long in jail itself? Okay, so I was facing a maximum 200-year sentence. Ooh. I fought the case for 26 months. Serious drug offender status was filed on me right away, which carries 25 to life. I had 10 charges. And then because I wouldn't sign a plea bargain and I, I tried to get my bail reduced, I had a hearing about a year or so in, and my bail got doubled to $1.5 million. My charges got doubled uh, to 20 plus, each carrying 10-year maximum, which made it 200 years if I went to trial. And I got moved to the maximum security Madison Street jail, which was infested with cockroaches. Um, so my first 26 months, I'm unsentenced on remand. Then the balance of the six... I'm in the Arizona Department of Corrections. But throughout the system, it's all completely gang controlled. I, I did all right for the first 26 months. I, I never got attacked while I was in that jail, but I did get attacked later on. Yeah, was it a bad beating? What happened was I got moved to a prison where I didn't know anybody. And my cellmate that they put me in with, the guards decided to play a prank. And the guy they put me in with was a serial home invader, torturer. So he was an old con who wanted another con in with him, not a fresh fish. A fresh fish is someone new to the prison. So as soon as I arrive, he's like, I've got a padlock in a sock. I can smash your brains in while you sleep. I can kill you whenever I want. He didn't like me from the get-go. Now, he got his mate 
this um, biker gang member to attack me just when my parents had flown 5,000 miles to visit me for Christmas. So I have no idea this has been planned. The two things you look forward to the most in prison are your visits and your mail. I'm walking to the visitation area, happy as can be. Big guy sneaks up behind me, bam, 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 starts kidney punching. All the prisoners stop to see my reaction because the gang rule is, you must hit back if anyone hits you. Otherwise, the whole gang will attack you on the spot. So I start throwing some kicks and punches. It was like hitting a big bag of cement. Plus, this guy was trained in kickboxing. So he smashed me up, knocked me down. I end up going to the visit all injured. Mum asked me what's wrong, and I can't say because she's already had a nervous breakdown of my situation. So two things happen when you go in. They do a charge check, and they do a heart check. And if you don't throw punches, you're considered a weakie. Absolutely grim. But, but, but while you were in there, because I know you, you mentioned, obviously, now you're out the other side of it, and you've looked back kind of going, right, maybe that wasn't the best uh, life decisions that I ever made. What are you doing now And you know, when you look back on it? What are your thoughts? So when I got out, um, so many great people helped me get my book published. My Life Story is a trilogy. And I also get my YouTube channel established. So now I use this big platform I've got to interview other people and help get their stories out. I've got a true crime podcast. We've interviewed hundreds of people now. And we've really been able to make a difference in people's lives. One guy, he was he served 34 years in California prison for a crime he hadn't committed. Found out as a baby he'd been sold. He was born on the Isle of Man and sold to a wealthy American family. So ended up deported back to London where he didn't know anybody. We took him out to the Isle of Man. He, he met people out there. They loved him. And it's helped turn his life around. But we've expanded from interviewing just ex-prisoners to victims of crime. I'm not making excuses for what I did either. I brought drugs into the country. I was a trafficker and I deserved my punishment. And I, you know, I went through it. I did my time and tried to turn it into the educational opportunity of a lifetime. I do a lot of yoga and meditation and I hope by using my platform now to raise awareness and to help people get their stories out, I'm restoring my own karma. Well, it's a fascinating story. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know anything about it and wants to go and look at your stuff where can they find you yeah so my youtube channel is just under my name sean atwood s-h-a-u-n-a-t-t wood and all my books are on amazon i've got 15 books out now they're on amazon worldwide i'm sure it'll be an interesting read but sean thanks a million for popping on uh, the show for play to you for for turning your life around obviously sharing uh, sharing your story and trying to dissuade people from going down that path but it's been a pleasure thanks again for popping on fm 104 you're listening to the Room 104 Podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Shalon. FM 104. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.